This is The Blueprint, brought to you by Executive Platforms. Hello again, everyone. You're listening to another episode of Executive Platform's Blueprint podcast series. My name is Jeff Mix. I'm head of content and research. My guest today is Rick Johnston. He's a senior director with Applied Materials. We're going to have a conversation about how technology is changing the pharmaceutical industry, what biopharmaceutical executives should be thinking about as these new tools, uh, new tools come online, uh, some of the trends. I think this is going to be a fantastic conversation. Rick, thanks so much for joining me today. Hey, Jeff. Lovely to be here. So why don't we start off with Applied Materials as a company. Uh, Applied Materials is a leader in automation of semiconductor fabs, uh, but digital maturity is lagging in the pharmaceutical industry. How have you approached bringing tools and processes from that industry to pharma? Yeah, it's a great question. The, what we've seen, right, is that the, the semiconductor industry for 30 years has been laser focused on margins, right? On process efficiency, on yield improvements. And of course, that's just because the nature of the industry means you know, you need to do better than your competitors, right? Traditionally, pharma hasn't had the same focus, right? And so what we've seen is only in the last maybe five or 10 years, as facilities fill up, as there's a greater product mix across different facilities, we've seen a sort of a, a large, a sort of a sea change in the way that pharmaceuticals kind of view the need for process efficiency, right? So what's really cool about the semiconductor industry is they've been very focused, right? And, and, and implementing these kinds of advanced analytics, advanced process control, advanced scheduling that really aim to move the facility to a place where it's lights out, right? So there's no people in the facility, the systems, the robots are running things, right? So the robots are essentially optimizing the process. And, and this, you know, there's a ton of technology that kind of is, has come over the last 30 years um, and is now, you know, we're doing things like uh, machine learning, AI, right? That really hasn't, still hasn't hit the pharmaceutical industry, but the nice thing is there's a real roadmap there, right? So what um, Applied Materials has done is we have a, now a, an enormous number, 80 people who uh, are pharma focused, right? But are using that same set of tools from the semiconductor industry and bringing them into essentially the pharma, the pharma space. We've seen amazing benefits, right? So huge 40% yield improvements, huge decreases in process variability. So there's a, there's a ton of really, really nice stuff coming out of there, and it's really just a case of applying those algorithms, right, in a way that really makes sense for the pharmaceutical industry. Now, I have a lot of conversations in, in my line of work where we talk about bringing the digital revolution to this industry or that industry. Um, how can advanced analytics work when many of the systems in pharmaceutical manufacturing are still sort of islands of automation? Yeah, the islands of automation thing is, is very frustrating for everybody, uh, especially those right on the shop floor who are trying to get data out of systems, trying to do analytics. And there's this recent kind of move towards analytics as a service where, you know, many people know Python well, for example, and they'd like to be able to kind of do a lot of the, these analytics themselves. I will say that I think um, many of these systems do have connections, right? And um, Applied Materials, you know, has, has been very focused, right, on just very low level, very simple systems to connect, right? So OPC, right? Serial ports, very low level things that we can use to kind of get data out of those systems um, and try and use that data then for analytics. So we've seen large companies doing, you know, very complex enterprise buses. We think that's a bit of a Rube Goldberg machine, right? It can get really complicated. And we think that just, you know, simple systems that connect in. Our focus has really just been to kind of build these point to point um, integrations. And we think that you can get if you get really close to the machine, right, with, with a kind of a, a system, a sensor that's kind of pulling data out, 
and you can connect to any system across the across the enterprise. That's really where 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 things are at today. And of course, the benefit of that, right, is even if you do have a system that is an island of automation, right, that that does sort of sit on its own and is being controlled by people pressing buttons, right, on that piece of equipment, you can get some really nice data out of it, and you can actually use that data in real time. So increasingly, we're seeing our customers be able to do that, which I think is really cool, right? So. You've described scheduling as one of the biggest unsolved problems in pharma manufacturing today. Why scheduling? Oh man, scheduling is a mess in this industry. So the way I like to think about it is um, you have a facility, many, many uh, of our customers today have spent hundreds of millions of dollars on that facility. They're spending tens of millions of dollars a year maintaining that facility. That facility is critical to the output of the, of the entire network. And at the same time, right, they're using Excel, right, or some very basic system that is not designed to do scheduling, right, to, to, to optimize the production of that facility, right? It's sort of like owning a Lamborghini, but then having like a, a steering wheel made out of cardboard, right? It just doesn't really make sense. And so what we've seen is that although it's traditionally not been an area of focus um, for manufacturers, it's sort of thought of, I think, by many as, as sort of something that you add in afterwards or something that maybe is just less important. If you sort of think about it, it's one of the biggest ways that you can actually make a change, right, to actually how the facility operates without investing in new equipment, right? So you don't have to spend capital, but you are using that capital more efficiently. And we call this concept next best action. So you have a piece of equipment, after it finishes its task, what is the next thing it should do? that thing should be optimized, right? We should be giving that piece of equipment its next task, that next task should be the best possible thing for that equipment to do. Today, that's not happening, right? For a variety of reasons, right? Schedulers are calling down to the shop floor, right? There's no real-time systems. They're using Excel and like little, you know, moving blocks around, right? Like super old-fashioned, and it doesn't really make sense. In, in cases where we've sort of seen um, advanced scheduling, and by that we mean you know, a web-based tool right, that's used by operators on the floor, so you're getting real-time data, and then an optimizer. right? So this is something that's actually picking the next best thing to do, which may be for a piece of equipment to do nothing for a little while. right? Um, by using those two kind of key pieces of technology, we've seen throughput increases of 10 to 15% right, without buying new equipment. I mean, that's like kind of incredible if you think about it. right? And it also has like, uh, like sort of added benefits right, of, of things like you know, lowering kind of overtime, right? Lowering process variability. So we see it just being of, of tremendous benefit and I think something that's very underutilized today. I feel like we can't have a conversation about bringing the industrial internet of things to the pharmaceutical industry without talking about regulation. So how valuable are closed loop control and advanced machine learning type models in such a highly regulated industry? Yeah, I think it's difficult and I think the you know, the, the FDA recognized this about 10 or 15 years ago, right, where they introduced uh, QBD, right, and, and various kind of design of experiment type approaches to, um, to getting approval for, for, for new drugs, right? So we have the benefit of that legacy now. I think there are many um, processes where the design space, right, the space of allowable action is, is pretty big, right? So instead of in the olden days, you prescribe the exact number or a very tiny range, right, of, of possible uh, kind of performance, now we essentially have a, a wider range in which to operate, right? So I think for new products, right, coming down the coming down the line um, that will be approved in the coming years, there's a whole set of very nice technologies, right? So for one of them, we have um, it'll actually do a sort of a closed loop control where it steps through the design of experiment space automatically, 
collects the data and then uses the data to determine where else in the design space it should be going through, right? So quite interesting because it allows us to be able to, for a new product, work out where the safe space of operation is, right? But even for existing products that you have out today, we have machine learning approaches that's still within that validated operating range, right? So a good example is when do you feed, uh, when do you do a media feed, right? Often there's a time window, right? Like between 10 and every 10 and 14 hours, right? And most people just pick the middle or there's an SOP, but there is, there is a range that you can, that you can deliver that, that media feed in. And so we can have a machine learning algorithm actually altering that in real time, right? And making small perturbations to performance. What happens if we do 11 and a half hours? What happens if we do 12 and a half hours, right? And sort of seeing what the impact is gonna be. And we've seen actually tremendous benefits um, from leading edge companies doing that. So you're sort of iterating within the design space still, right? Um, but able to kind of apply some of these really advanced algorithms. And the nice thing about it is it's black box, right? You don't need to have like a mechanistic understanding, right? Of like the exact relationship between all the process variables. All you need to do is essentially plug this black box in, give it the kind of space in order to kind of do its operation. And then of course a DCS and control system that's enforcing those limits, right? Um, and then you still have a safe process. You still have something that's within uh, the, the region of control, right? You still have something that's validatable and you get, I think, some very, very significant results, even for existing products. Now, you mentioned yield improvement earlier and yield improvement has been a focus for pharma manufacturers for decades. You know, how do you see analytics like the ones you've described, uh, closed loop control, machine learning, helping that specific problem? Yeah, I mean, this is something where we've seen uh, enormous, enormous effort in the pharmaceutical industry, particularly in biologics, right? Um, and we've seen tremendous advances in, 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 in yield. Um, and, and a lot of that is due to right, the use of advanced medias. There's some very, very nice medias out today. One of the things that we still see is an enormous amount of lot to lot or batch to batch variability in the yield process titer coming out of the upstream. So particularly for bio, biologics, right? Someday cells grow, sometimes they don't. We don't really know why. Right? And so there's this inherent variability that I think people have baked into their assumptions about how biologics need to, need to operate. Now, a lot of these systems that do closed loop control, right, you can set them on different targets. Right? So one of them is yield improvement. The other is, for example, lowering yield variability. Right? And the benefit of this is that you can kind of dial in without like, that detailed mechanistic understanding of like, what the best thing is to do for a particular process to achieve very reliable operation and also something that's going to over time increase increase titers or, or throughput. And so, you know, what we've seen is in companies that do this, particularly for perfusion processes, we've seen 40% yield improvements, but even for classic fed batch, we've seen five or 10% yield improvements with a drop in variability of like 40 to 50%. So very, very significant results just applying these closed loop controls, right? Where, you know, you have an operator, you know, doing things manually today, right? And maybe on the graveyard shift, you know, they forget to do it quite when they should. But it turns out that that process is very sensitive to those kinds of very small perturbations. And so by having a machine learning model with control, right, so the feedback loop is automatic, it's deciding when to do things, you can get actually much, much more um, dialed in results and, and some really, really nice stuff coming out of that from some of our larger companies that we're working with. I mean, those are really impressive numbers that yeah. you're already seeing today. Um, I guess I want to talk about the future. You know, what is the future for DCS and MES systems and other centralized control systems in the industry? I mean, if you can achieve those kind of results with one set of tools, once you've got the, the centralized centralization, 
it feels like there must be some really incredible stuff coming down the pipe. Yeah, I think there's like this real, one of the sort of unsung heroes, right, of this, of, of uh, manufacturing has been the ubiquity of uh, very high compute power, right, that's now available essentially for free in these kind of industrial machines, right, that sit very close to skids. And so traditionally, right, we've had a model where we have maybe as a vendor, you know, we buy from a vendor an MES, we buy, we buy a DCS, right? And then we have a you know, relatively simple control system that's sitting on the, the, the specific piece of equipment, right, the SCID. Now, what the benefit of these kind of this essentially advanced computing systems is, is we can put a computer, a quite advanced computer, right on the SCID, right? And what this means is essentially that the SCID becomes much more sophisticated, at least in concept, than it used to be, right? So you sort of have this, the sort of move from like the olden days, right, where there was a sort of a centralized computer controlling everything, to I think a, a much more decentralized model where we still have a DCS. We think that's important, right? But we have much more control, much more auto, uh, autonomy, right, happening uh, in an individual recipe, right? Now this doesn't happen for all of the um, pieces of equipment and all of the kind of recipes that are running, right? There are still recipes that are DCS controlled and are going to be for the foreseeable future. But we do see um, tremendous improvements happening as a result of kind of implementing these kind of more advanced te technologies, which you can put on this very inexpensive compute that sits really close, right, to, to, to a piece of equipment. And that means, of course, you have, you know, millisecond control, right, whereas, you know, with a, with a DCS, you're look, talking seconds or minutes, right, so we're like, you know, looking at something that's very much more real time, right, and I think that's a very exciting place for the industry to be. I mean, we've been having this conversation about bringing digital tools to an industry that is a little behind the curve on it. Um, the other big, exciting trend that I, I talk all the time about in this space is cell and gene therapy. And cell and gene therapy manufacturing is coming. It's going to be disruptive. You know, can you tell us a little bit about how you think that fits into the technology piece? We are passionate about cell and gene therapy, but we're also aware, right, that it's very early days, right? And I think a lot of manufacturers today are, are trying to figure out, right, like, where do we manufacture this? Is it going to be in a hospital? Is it going to be at a, a center of care that's close to an airport? Is this something that's going to follow a more traditional manufacturing route? Um, and I think one of the real struggles with cell and gene um, therapies, right, is that the, the patient is the batch, right? So in the olden days, right, we made uh, batches. Uh, each batch, like, served thousands of patients, right? And we stored large stocks of inventory, safety stock, of that product, right, so that if we had any issues, um, we could essentially, you know, we could continue to, to sell and deliver product, right? Cell and gene therapy does away with that, right? As a, as a patient, particularly for cell therapies, autologous cell therapies, you have essentially the need to collect material from the patient, send that to a center, um, and then take the material that's there and send it back, right? There's no ability for us to hide behind safety stocks. And so instead of safety stock, we have to have some other set of concepts that allow us to de-risk that supply chain, right? These are life-saving therapies. It's very important that they're delivered to patients on time. And so we need some concept around safety time, right? Where we allow a little bit of extra time, a little bit of extra capacity in the network, right? Where we can, uh, we can allow ourselves, right, to, to deal with the inevitable variability that we do see in this industry. And I think one of the things that people don't think about when they think about this industry, right? It's we always deliver to patients, right? People are very focused on patient safety. That has come 
with tremendous effort, right, of the pharmaceutical industry in building these kinds of safety stocks and systems. And we really need to do the same thing in the, in the cell and gene therapy space. Now, it's tricky to do, right? It requires a complete rethink of the way that we have traditionally thought about supply chains, right? We've thought about kind of building inventory, but instead we need to think about building in buffer times, right? Much more similar to a, to a, a FedEx, right? Where they're thinking about kind of moving a package from place to place and the, the potential things could, that could go wrong, right? So that kind of buffer time, and then also buffer capacity. What happens if a piece of equipment that we're using for that manufacturing process goes down, right? What do we do, right? And so, so I think there's a number of very, very interesting approaches. The analytics for it is a little complex, and uh, we're seeing kind of leading biomanufacturers in the space really focusing on those types of things, right? As they as we as we're getting these products to market, right? So it's a very, very exciting time. I would say it's also very early, and so uh, the partners that we have, uh, you know, we're we're very proud of some of the work that's happened to date, um, and kind of de-risking those um, those those delivery pieces. And really bringing actually a lot of it's to do with scheduling, right? Optimal scheduling um, to the forefront of, of this this particular space. Yeah, you know, Rick, we've covered a lot of ground in this conversation, and I think probably it wouldn't hurt for us to circle back and just make sure if there are one or two key takeaways you want people to think about a little further. You know, what are those bullet points that you really hope people get from this conversation? Yeah, I think there's two key things. I mean, the first right is that I think a lot of people. Um, uh, I really feel like they can do better with analytics, right? But they feel that that requires them to purchase a big solution, to do, you know, a roll out a multi-million dollar investment, right? That kind of rethinks their entire enterprise bus. And so I think a lot of people today are hesitant um, to be kind of incrementally walking towards the kind of um, the types of things we've been talking about, right? Like advanced process control, doing more advanced scheduling. So I think there's there's really is a ton of very practical, small, targeted steps that, that teams can do, right? It doesn't have to be a huge multi-million dollar investment, right? And I think that that kind of incremental approach is also tremendously beneficial, right? Because I think there is a roadmap for folks, right? We're trying to move folks from this like place where we're just kind of executing on recipes and not thinking too much about um, you know, excellent right, uh, manufacturing to a place where we're much more focused on yield improvements on predictable cycle times, right? And so that's a journey, right? And it requires a bunch of small steps, right? And so that's, you know, when for places we've worked with, that's been tremendously important, right? Not viewing this thing as a, as a huge project, but a, but a series of kind of incremental targeted um, problems to solve, right? That's the first thing. I think the second sort of key takeaway for me, right, is that the industry today, if you think about the biggest unsolved problem, right, it is scheduling, right? Today we have, um, basically no scheduling systems in place, right? And these, if you go talk to the guy on the shop floor who's executing a schedule, right? He's the guy who's pressing the button, right? He's almost always using Excel, right? Or some thing that has been manually derived from, from a supervisor. And that really isn't acceptable, right? In an industry today that's tremendously sophisticated, that has you know, a tremendous depth of experience and honestly, a bunch of very smart people, right? Executing these types of things. It really is a place where we can do a lot better, right? And so I think, again, a scheduling system is not something where we're buying equipment, right? It's relatively simple to implement. Um, and it provides this kind of ability for, you know, just in a very simple way, right? What is the next best thing this piece of equipment or this operator should do, right? To get to get the most benefit for the, for the facility as a whole. It's very practical, right? And, it, and I think drives tremendous improvements in the facilities that we've implemented it at. 
for people who have been listening and want to learn more or ask a few questions, uh, what is the best way for them to get in touch? Yeah, so we have a bunch of uh, material on AppliedSmartFactory.com. We publish uh, blogs and, um, and uh, a bunch of kind of webinars uh, every few months. Uh, so I'd suggest you go there. It's we've got a ton of really good material. As I say, we have 80 people, right, who are just focused in pharma, just executing these types of projects every day, right? And so there's a ton of really nice learnings there that we've published. Uh, the other is you can just reach out to me, right? Um, through my LinkedIn uh, or just emailing me directly, uh, rick underscore johnston at amat.com. Well, I encourage everyone to check out that website and also to reach out to Rick. He's, uh, he's been fantastic uh, having a conversation with. Rick, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks so much, Jeff. I appreciate it. You've been listening to another episode of Executive Platform's Blueprint podcast series. I've been Jeff Mix. Let's do it again soon.